Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm Janice Richardson. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. So glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Miranda McCoy about vulnerability. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. It's nice to have you uh, interview me. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, it's great you're coming on the program. So could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, so I've been teaching at Boston College for about 25 years. I got my doctorate at Boston University, and my specialty is really twofold. Most of my writing is on Plato, ancient Greek philosophy, themes like vulnerability, social and ethical issues. But I also teach in a service learning program in which my students are going out and serving underprivileged communities in the city of Boston, thinking about questions of justice, including social justice and injustice. And that kind of teaching has really informed my interest in topics like vulnerability because it's in the real world uh, where we encounter injustice and we also start to notice this question of vulnerability and invulnerability. So, yeah, I suppose you partly answered that, but what was it that inspired you to study vulnerability? I think it was two things at least. First of all, just being a person. I'm a human being and I've encountered my own life situations in which I'm vulnerable. But I noticed that a lot of Greek philosophy that I taught in my classes and that I've studied really focuses on the virtues. And of course, the virtues are good. I'm I'm very interested in courage, wisdom, moderation, uh, generosity, these kinds of things that Aristotle and others talk about. But when Aristotle talks about people, he really either pre- uh, presents people as wholly virtuous, like the high-minded man who is a man for Aristotle <laughs> with a deep, booming voice and has all the virtues and is probably a great political leader, or you're someone you fall short. And I was interested in how is it that we are not always perfect, not always in possession of everything that we'd want to be as a person, and yet still worthy. In fact, isn't this actually part of like why we connect to each other as people? So I wanted to just uh, basically see if, especially in the Greek world, there was another side to human vulnerability. And it turns out that Greek tragedy, Greek poetry, and even Plato and Aristotle themselves do take up this topic. And then the other reason was this, the service learning program. You know, I volunteered in a prison community for, uh, oh gosh, maybe about 10 years now. And I 
certainly have encountered a lot of struggle with what it means to be human in the context where both men have suffered injustices, men and women suffer injustices in the prison system. And also they, uh, especially in the United States, <laughs> and they also have, uh, you know, come to terms with just their own personal vulnerability. Yeah, that's a good point. So would you have a definition of vulnerability? Yes, I think that vulnerability is the capacity to be wounded. So it's not, uh, it comes from the Latin word vulnus, uh, which means like to, to have a wound. It's like the Greek word trauma. So vulnerability isn't simply being hurt, right? Because we're not all going to be hurt throughout life in every way. Thank goodness I've never broken my leg and my arm, right? <laughs> but I could right? My body is, is capable of having that experience. And likewise, psychological or social harms are not going to happen to us all equally, right? Um, people who are members of a certain racialized class or people who are members of a certain community might have certain types of harms they experience disproportionately. But just the fact that we're human means we're going to experience some of those kinds of harms. And I wanted to draw attention to the fact that that's the human state, is that we're capable of being hurt. All right. So how is vulnerability central to the human experience? So I think there are at least three ways that we can be vulnerable. Um, certainly psychologically, we can be harmed by other people psychologically. We can be harmed by them uh, physically. And by physically, I don't simply mean things like injury or illness, although those are really important forms of vulnerability, but things like being uh, immigrants who are exiled from a safe political community, you know, not being able to immigrate to a new country where we can have citizenship. And that is a physical vulnerability that people experience, like not having a home. Uh, but also I'm interested in epistemological vulnerability, which is a vulnerability around knowledge. You know, we don't know everything. And that's something that's really important for politics today. You know, we don't give enough credibility to the fact that our views are limited. If you look at at least United States politics, but I imagine many other places in the world right now, we see a lot of people who think they know everything or are quite sure that the other side is completely wrong, doesn't have anything worthwhile to say, um, who doubt expertise, who don't care about, you know, these questions of what they don't know. And it's really important for us to have some humility to be able to listen to each other and to come to understand that we we do need to learn more than our current state of knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's really good you brought that point up. I was reading the other day, and don't quote me the percentage, but I think it was 32% of people in the States um, believe in evolution. And 32% of people in the States have got college degrees. So I just thought it was quite incredible. It's the same percentage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's a great example of people not recognizing their own limit. And, and at the same time, many of these people who don't think that evolution is a uh, is, it's clearly the best theory we've ever had to explain things. You know, it's very well supported at this point. And yet, people aren't willing to let go of some of their other commitments. They want to hold on to them very tightly and evolution gets in the way of those commitments instead of really rethinking the ways that they might understand, um, you know, questions like religious faith could be reformulated quite differently and still exist, but in the context of evolution. So, Yeah, that's a good point. 
how might we better come to terms with our own vulnerability? I think Socrates provides a fairly good model, which is he's always asking for us to test our own ideas. That's the first thing. We have to be willing to go through that very difficult process of having our own beliefs questioned, subjecting them to conversation, engaging in dialogue with people who are different than we are. You know, Socrates mostly talks to people who don't believe the same things he believes, and he tries to have those conversations to uh, test his own ideas, but also to test theirs. But I also think the other important thing about coming to terms with our own vulnerability is having a kind of, uh, and this would not maybe be a very Greek word or way of thinking about it, it's my way of thinking about it, a very compassionate stance towards ourselves and others to really understand that human beings are frail and that we need to um, kind of expect that in our relationships with one another and have a kind of care and tenderness for other people that arises from acknowledging that there's this shared vulnerability. Why is it important to accept our vulnerability? I think if we don't, we're going to act in ways that are arrogant and hurtful. And ironically enough, we'll actually hurt people more. <laughs> Um, I also think it's important because it's true, you know, so for example, in questions of politics, we might ask ourselves, well, why should I be responsible for someone else's well-being? Why should I care for the person who's poor? Why should I care for the person who's homeless or an immigrant? But the reality is, is because the human state is to have need of other people. You know, the fact that every time I eat a meal, the food on my plate came from someone who picked that food, who processed it, who trucked it across the country, in our, at least in, our, in my case, who, um, you know, helped to sell it at the grocery store and so on. Those, that demonstrates how interconnected we actually are for our most basic needs. And so it's a, a lie, a kind of illusion to think that we're not mutually dependent. And also, as uh, there's a great thinker, uh, um, Eva Kate, who talks about dependency conditions, and she says, listen, most of us will encounter, will be dependent upon other people in our old age, and everyone's dependent upon someone else in our childhood. We just are. So this idea that's autonomous person who simply is self-sufficient and doesn't need anyone, it's just a, a very temporary and unusual state, in fact, and not a typical one. What is the best way to respond to our vulnerability? I think it's helpful, first of all, to acknowledge it. And then second of all, to make sure that in our relationships with other people, we build that into how we conduct political policies as well as our interpersonal relationships. So concretely, that means a lot of different things. But for example, I think it does mean having a strong social safety net for people um, at a political level. But also it means that in our interpersonal, not just our formalized political government, you know, operations, but in our interpersonal relationships, we need to recognize the need to uh, care and be cared for. And that's very hard for people. In some ways, it's almost harder to be cared for, you know, than, than to offer care for a lot of people. But I think it is important that we have an ethics of mutual recognition of vulnerability. I also think that it means that we have to be um, 
to the extent that we can be, and not, I'm not saying we have to force this on people, but to try to be forgiving and reconciling in contexts where there's been prior damage, you know, it's, it's important for us to try to aim at least for genuine, just, you know, fair, but uh, re reconciliation ba based on real justice. Yeah, that, that's a point. I mean, it is it is quite difficult to realise that we are all vulnerable and we might be vulnerable in different ways. I mean, we might be physically able to do things, but psychologically we always have that need for other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And, you know, again, I think we have to also recognise that the kinds of vulnerabilities people experience have to be treated differentially. So, I don't want to assume that just because I've experienced sexism, that, that therefore I know exactly what it's like for a black woman in the United States uh, this year to experience racism, right? Uh, I need to also really listen to other people about what it means for them to experience vulnerability in their own situated context. And that means really, you know, being open to hearing things that maybe I didn't know before about myself or my world or the world of other people. That's a that's a really good point, and I mean sometimes sometimes people cope with discrimination better than better than other people, and I think maybe it's about having a support network as well. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's part of what. So I have a book called Wounded Heroes: Vulnerability as a Virtue in Ancient Greek Literature and Philosophy. And one of the things I argue in there is that it's actually vulnerability that creates the ties in our political communities. Um, it, it's where we, it's where we, you know, come together. It's not really through our strengths, but through our weaknesses that we tend to really come together as communities. And it is important for us to have communities, not only the wider political community, but networks of friendship and family. In fact, there was just recently, I think a New York Times series talking about how happiness is so deeply connected to people having a good network of friends and support. And that seems to be borne out by empirical science that we need other people uh, to be happy, but we need to have the right kinds of communities um, and not, but not stay isolated either. It's such a balance, I think, to have on the one hand, people who are supportive of us, who are like us, who can understand, for example, if we have a certain kind of discrimination we've experienced or we have common interests, but then we also must find ways to cross lines to talk to people who are different than we are, lest we universalize our experience and think, oh, okay, I know what it's like <laughs> to be a person when in fact we know what it's like to be a particular person in the world, but not everything. Yes, that's right. And especially when you were saying about people sort of bonding over a certain happiness or a political group, you know, with politics, you could actually bond over knowledge. And it's that thing of, if you don't have the knowledge, you can debate with somebody about a certain topic and not just be so fixed and, and rigid in thinking because I think a lot of people, well, it's sort of like, say, for example, soap powder. People buy the product that their parents bought and the same with religion. People take on uh, their parents' religion without actually thinking about it themselves. And there's so many people that just take on the same political view without actually thinking the whole thing through, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's helpful for us to be able to try new ideas on, try to, try to you know, as you said, debate with people 
in a way that's respectful, but that's really allows us to think through issues. And one thing that's hard is that we tend to still think that the aim of debate is to win, that we should win the argument. And even when we don't want to, we tend to do it, right? Like I'm deeply committed to the idea of examining my own beliefs, but get me in a political argument and I might very well try to persuade you of like my view, right? But it's important that we not associate like changing one's mind with shame or changing one's views fundamentally with like a moral failure. I mean, what Socrates or Plato tried to show us is that actually it's not a moral failure to change your views. If your views were limited and bad, or even not bad, but just not complete, you know? And I think we've seen a lot of social progress has happened when we did let go of antiquated notions and were able to move into new ideas. But who knows how much further we have to go? We may have lots of blind spots. We do have blind spots, but we don't know what they all are yet. And that's only through conversation that we'll find out. Yeah, we could actually see it as a success. If you have changed your mind lately, can be sure that you still have a mind and that you're still thinking. So it it could be like a a, a win situation, like, oh, I've changed my mind on that because I've been informed by a certain certain knowledge that I didn't have before. So it's probably something to actually be really proud of if you change your mind. Yeah, and even to be able to say, I don't know. I try really hard as a teacher when my students ask me questions and I don't know the answer to say, you know what, that's a great question, I don't know, instead of faking an answer. And it's partly because I'm trying to model for them the idea that that's part of, again, being a person is we don't know everything. And sometimes we need to stop, admit we don't know something and then inquire more. So could you tell us about on tragedy and the ways um, that your book responds to some of the issues that worked on and raised about human frailability. Uh, yeah, Martha Nussbaum, you had mentioned before in an email, right. right? So you pointed out her book, Fragility of Goodness. She's a really, really strong writer and thinker. Um, I've, I've really engaged with her thinking a lot throughout my career, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for her thinking. She's a University of Chicago professor and really has written some really beautiful work. Um, One place I have enjoyed her work is that she emphasizes the ways in which the Greeks noticed uh, tragic dimension to human life, that not everything works out perfectly. So, for example, she gives the um, instance of how Antigone in Sophocles' play has two competing things that she has to do. She's supposed to obey the laws of the city, not bury her brother's body, and she's also supposed to bury her brother's body because religion demands it. And Nussbaum says, there is no way to make everything perfect and everything right. And so I think she thinks correctly that sometimes in life, there isn't the one right answer. There's just doing the best we can with what's really there. Um, One place I've disagreed with her though, is she's often suggested that Plato was really anti-tragic. And one thing I try to argue is that it's actually quite sensitive to limit and tragedy, especially if we pay attention to this uh, character Socrates and his constant self-questioning and its constant desire to, you know, understand other people better, but also to test them and test himself as much as he can to, to learn what he doesn't know. Yeah, I think the thing with with, um, a tragedy too, everybody reacts differently and sometimes it's very difficult to sustain major grief 
and mm. uh, especially using COVID as an example, I mean, we still have quite a few people dying in this country, but you don't see anything on the news about it anymore because we're sort of coming up to three years of it and people yeah. just can't take it on anymore. Yeah, it's the same here. And it is it is a great example of how, you know, the, the lived reality suddenly becomes not important to people because they just get tired of, of, of what real, real life looks like. And one wonders how much that's true everywhere in life, right? That there are all kinds of ways people suffer, but we get fatigue, compassion fatigue. So again, I think there is an element of Mm, having to be able to live with the fact that things in human life are difficult. Like we certainly where I live, people have also tired of it. The rates are going up quite a bit right now in Boston as we're recording this. And yet people really aren't changing their behavior at all in response to it. And um, I think part of that is that we just really want to believe that the world is going to be fine. And when it isn't fine, we can <laughs> we kind of can't deal with it, you know. But it's quite important for us to understand that the world isn't entirely fine and figure out how to live in a caring way with one another in light of the world not being a perfect place where everything will just be okay if we close our eyes <laughs> and keep our eyes open to the way things are. Yeah, that's a good point. So what are the links between human and non-human animals in regard to vulnerability? Yeah, I think, you know, so I think that uh, it's a great question to ask. You know, a lot of our vulnerability is very similar to animal vulnerability. The fact that animals can feel pain is not that different from the fact that we can feel pain in particular ways. So, uh, you know, for example, animal cruelty is something that is not, so separate from the question of our the ways that we treat other human beings. Um, if we're willing to treat animals cruelly, then I think we're also less likely to be sensitive to the ways that we uh, don't really care about, you know, the animal pain that human beings can also experience. So I think the question is not only, you know, human vulnerability, but just like, what is it to be a creature? What is it to be a, a mortal being in all of its many senses. Yeah, so is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? I just wanted to say that I think vulnerability is also a really wonderful aspect of being a person, you know. I think sometimes I thought there has to be a point in life somewhere as you're getting older, maybe not when you're very young, where you have to decide, do you like humans or not? <laughs> Do we like the fact that we're not, you know, I'm getting older, I'm eventually going to get more wrinkles and my body will ache in more spots. Um, people are going to fail me sometimes and I'm going to fail them. But also there's something really wonderful about the mutual need and the way that we grow through understanding our frailty and the what kind of tenderness that can come out of encountering one another's frailty. Um, for example, you talked about grief, you know, when we accompany people who are ill or dying, there can also be something really wonderful that happens in those caring connections. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to end on the note that it's, uh, it's good to love what is human and it's a challenge to love what is human. But in the end, I think it's the only real yes we can say to life. 
Yeah, well, I suppose when you look at it, when we're babies, we're very vulnerable. So we go from being very, very vulnerable to, be, you know, gradually getting more and more independence and then we're adults and then, you know, we have we might have dependence of our own and then we may have to care for our parents or, or other older people around us. So it's sort of a bit like a circle, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And that's the one of the things that keeps us connected. Oh, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me and for such a lively conversation. I appreciated your questions and really helpful insights. Oh, thank you. And I've been speaking with Professor Marina McCoy about vulnerability. And that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program.